Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We took a little break last Sunday and gave some thought and attention to the Reformation. But uh, today we're back on course, uh, Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to pick up where we left off a couple of Sundays ago, reading in verse 12. So again, that is the book of Romans, chapter 5, beginning to read in the 12th verse. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Close to 500 years ago, there was a catechism produced. A catechism is simply a series of questions and answers designed to instruct both adults and children in the faith. And this catechism was called the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number 60 in this catechism is on the screen behind me. You've been staring at this question for a few moments. Let me read it for you. How are you righteous before God? It is the question of all questions. It really is, in many respects, the only question that matters. The issue before us is simple. Uh, we are not righteous. As a matter of fact, Scripture makes it clear we are unrighteous. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Another way in which scripture describes our predicament is as follows. We are all under sin. And so it begs an obvious question. How can I, a sinner, how can I, one who has sinned in a multitude of different ways, be considered righteous, stand righteous before God? Now the catechism doesn't leave us hanging. It does not leave us in any doubt 
It answers the question very straightforward to the point. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, there is nothing we can do to alter our standing in God's sight. There is nothing we can contribute, nothing we can perform to change that sentence of condemnation that hangs over all of us. No, all we do is receive by faith in Jesus Christ this gift which God offers to us. Now the catechism goes on in a little more detail. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And here it becomes very experimental. It describes our predicament. It describes our experience in wonderful terms. It says, even though my conscience accuses me, I've been there and I'm certain you have been there. Even though my conscience accuses me of what? Of having sinned against all God's commandments. That's the first thing it accuses me of. I have disobeyed all of God's commandments, beginning with the chief one. I am required to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't do that. I disobey that command. I disobey all of God's commandments. But it also accuses me of never having kept any of them, even in the slightest. I've never obeyed one of his commands, but it doesn't stop there. My conscience accuses me of being inclined toward all evil. And so I know who I am. I can't pretend otherwise as I stand here before you this Sunday morning. I know exactly what I am. My conscience reminds me of it daily. I have sinned against all God's commandments. I have never kept any of them. And I am inclined toward all evil. But notice the next word in the catechism. Nevertheless, big fancy word for one of my favorite words, but, but nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer, I love that word, sheer grace, superabounding grace. Here's what God does. God grants and credits to me. The perfect, notice the threefold description, the perfect satisfaction, perfect righteousness, and perfect holiness of Christ. So although my conscience accuses me, although I know I stand guilty, condemned in God's sight, without any merit of my own, out of his sheer grace, here is what God does. He grants, credits, reckons, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And then notice what the catechism goes on to say, as if I had never sinned. Isn't that marvelous? I'm going to say amen. You can say what you want. Amen. As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner. And as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And then it ends off, caps off the answer to the question as follows. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Another hearty amen. I'm going to leave that up there, that statement, and we're going to come back to the PowerPoint in just a few moments. That 60th question 
in the Heidelberg Catechism. That has been Paul's theme in this letter to the Romans, written almost 2,000 years ago. It has been his theme since chapter 3, verse 21. He introduced this theme as early as chapter 1, verse 17, where he quotes from the book of Habakkuk, the righteous, so the man, the woman who is righteous in God's sight, the man, the woman who is reckoned as righteous, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who is received as righteous in God's sight, that individual who can stand righteous in the sight of God lives by faith. It is something reckoned to them by God. And it is simply something we receive as a gift through faith. He introduces the subject in chapter 1, verse 17. He does not get to it, though, until chapter 3, verse 21. Because in the intervening verses, he paints a very dark, pitiful portrait for us. If you want to set off the beauty of a diamond, what do you do? You set it against what? A black backdrop. That's all Paul is doing in chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. He is painting a black portrait of our sin to set off the resplendent beauty of this wonderful truth that he begins to handle so, pre so precious, and he's so gentle in his handling of it, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21. The first thing he does, chapter 3, verse 21 to 31, is explain it. And you know this, if you've been here, you know this as well as I do. He explains the doctrine of justification, that God justifies us. God changes that verdict from guilty to innocent, and changes that sentence from death to life. He does it by grace. It's grace. It's a gift. He does it through faith. We simply receive it. And he does it in Christ because he has displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood. In other words, the Lord Jesus has borne in full the penalty for our sin. So there's that beautiful explanation, chapter 3, verse 21 through 31. Then we get into chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to the end, verse 25. And here Paul defends, he defends the doctrine of justification. He defends it in particular against those who say, well, this is a novel idea. I've never heard this before. And Paul's response is very simple, very straightforward. This is not a novel idea. How do you think Abraham was saved? How do we think Abraham was justified? It was apart from works. It was apart from circumcision. It was apart from the law. You see, Abraham was justified through faith. And anyone who has ever been accepted in God's sight, anyone who has ever been considered reckoned righteous in God's sight has been reckoned considered righteous in the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's his defense. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, having explained the doctrine of justification, having defended the doctrine of justification, now he gets all excited and he celebrates it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And three times he utters that expression, we rejoice. 
We glory, we exult, we rejoice firstly in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice secondly in our suffering because God is accomplishing something through our suffering and thereby confirming to us his love for us. And we rejoice, we exult, we glory thirdly in God himself. That's what he has been doing since chapter 3 verse 21. And now we come to our present text, chapter 5 verse 12 through 21, and it begs the question, He's still handling this precious pearl or diamond justification. What's he doing here? What's going on in these verses? And what I want to do is set the foundation for these verses this morning. We're actually going to break them into three divisions. I'm going to look briefly at verses 12, 13, and 14 today. Next Sunday, we're going to look at verses 15, 16, and 17. Lord willing, the Sunday after that, 18 through 21, we're going to divide into three sections because there's a lot here. But right now, I want to take just a few moments to introduce this section again, verses 12 through 21 as a whole, so that we get our minds around it and we can answer that question, what's going on here? What's Paul doing here? And in the sermon notes, I have included three words. M&Ms, they all start with the letter M. Motive, method, and message. Turn them into three questions. What is Paul's motive in these verses? What is Paul's method in these verses? What is Paul's message in these verses? We answer those three questions. We have a good mental grasp of this section in its entirety. So we begin with question number one. What is his motive? Or to put it another way, what is his goal? Or another word we might use, what is his objective? All Paul is doing is building on the first 11 verses. And in particular, he is building on a phrase he has employed seven times in the first 11 verses. The phrase is this, through Christ, through Christ. He uses it in the very first verse, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it for the seventh time in the 11th verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, through whom? We have now received reconciliation. And so in verse 1, verse 11, he emphasizes something through Christ. In verse 1, he says, through Christ, we have peace with God. In verse 11, he says, through Christ, we have reconciliation. And so he makes the same point in verse 1, verse 11, and it serves as bookends around this first section. And all he is doing now, beginning in verse 12 through to 21, is he is trying to exalt this truth. He is trying to exalt Christ and who we are, what we are through Christ, what God has accomplished in Christ. But Paul wants us to have an exalted view, a, a lifted view a high view of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so you think of those views you've experienced during your life. Whenever you visited famous places, I don't know, the Grand Canyon. I remember a few summers ago going to visit the Hoskins in Colorado, and they took us to Black Canyon. 
If ever you're visiting the Hoskins in Colorado, make sure they take you to Black Canyon and ask PD to drive fast. That's all you need to know. You want to visit Black Canyon and you want him to drive fast. What a view once you get up high and you're able to take in that canyon in all its beauty, all its glory. If you want to see something, really appreciate a landscape, what do you need to do? You need to get up high. That's what Paul is doing in these verses. He has introduced a truth. We are what we are through Christ. We have peace with God through Christ. That is true. What I want to do now is get you up high, take you by the hand so that you can take in the full landscape and appreciate the beauty and the glory of this truth. That's his motive. What's his method? What's his method? Now, I want to pause and I want to say something here. I don't say this tongue in cheek. I love you. All right. And I hope you love me five minutes from now. Because answering this question, there is, I don't know what else to do. We have to look at grammar. And I know it's painful for us to even think of the word grammar. But we have to look at grammar to understand, to be able to answer that question, what is his method? How does he get us up high? And I belabored this. Oh, I did, brothers and sisters. I belabored this this past week, and I've done my best. I'm going to appeal to the PowerPoint, and, and I, hope, I hope it helps us what I have put up there. What I want you to notice, right there in verse 12, there it is. I've put it up on the screen. The verse begins, therefore, right? Hearkening back to verses 1 through 11. And then Paul immediately says, this is exciting and it is fascinating. He says, just as. In using those words, what is he doing? Just as. He is introducing a comparison. Just as. And so he, he describes something. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And so he has initiated a comparison. Now to complete the comparison grammatically, what are we looking for? We're looking for an expression, even so, right? So too, he's introduced the comparison and so in our minds, we're now thinking, okay, we're, 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 we're honed in. I understand Paul has just introduced something. Now he's going to compare something else to it, just as even so. Now here's where it gets tricky. We don't find the words even so in verse 13. They're not found in verse 14. They are not found in verse 15. They are not found in verse 16. They are found in verse 18. Even so, and he repeats the thing he is comparing as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so what we have from the end of verse 12, all the way through to the start of verse 18 is an interruption, an interruption. The English Standard Version, if you're using that translation, it indicates that there's an interruption. How? With the M dash. Do you see it? Right there after the word sin? 
The problem with the English Standard Version is it doesn't tell you when Paul completes the comparison. It gives you no hint whatsoever. The King James Version is far more helpful. Because you know what the King James Version does? The King James Version puts verses 13 through 17 in parentheses, brackets. And then starts verse 18 with the word, so in order to clearly indicate that verses 13 through 17 are parenthetical. They are an interruption in Paul's main point. Paul's main message is found in verses 12, 18, and 19. So why the interruption? Oh, Paul, why put us through that? That's painful. Well, as Paul takes his audience, his readers by the hand, And as he leads them up high, he says, close your eyes, close your eyes. I want this to be spectacular. When you open your eyes, what I'm about to show you concerning Christ. And as I give you this this beautiful landscape, I want you to be able to take it all in. But I know I I need to explain a couple things. I need to point out a couple things. Because if you don't understand these things, if you just open your eyes and look at this landscape, well, these things are going to be distracting. And you're not going to see what I want you to see. You're not going to be able to behold what I want you to behold. And so in this parenthetical portion, verses 13 through 17, he has to explain a couple things. At the end of verse 12, he has used that expression, because all sinned. And he thinks to himself as he's writing, well, I know where I want to go with this comparison, but you know, that expression, because all sinned, some people aren't going to understand that. And he explains it in verses 13 and 14. And then at the end of verse 14, he uses another phrase in reference to Adam. He was a type of the one who was to come. Well, I'm going to have to explain that. People aren't going to understand. And he explains it in verses 15, 16, and 17. Okay, okay, I've explained what I need to explain. I've explained some things which would have been distracting. You now understand it. Open your eyes. And he completes the thought in verses 18 through 19. He completes the comparison. That is his method. Do you still love me? I still love you. It is extremely important. Otherwise, we will get lost in there. And we won't be able to understand the third thing we must grasp. What is his message? What's his point? Uh, What is he doing? What is he trying to accomplish? Well, read again verse 12 with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so I've introduced a comparison. Over here, the one man is whom? It's Adam. And Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, well, all sinned, and death spread through him. Now, I want to complete this comparison. And so here he goes, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, he's describing Adam again, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now, here's the the comparison, the completion of the thought. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. He repeats it in slightly different language in verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made, a better word is constituted. The many were constituted sinners. So by, there's the comparison, the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He is comparing, you can take away that PowerPoint, Tricia, thank you. He is, comparis, he is comparing two men. He is comparing over here, Adam, with over here, the last Adam, Christ. And his message is very simple. 
His message is simply this, as he's God is up high and he wants us to take in this, this, this view, this panorama, this, this beautiful landscape. He says, look, I want you to understand that there are two men, only two, only two men. You have Adam, literal Adam. Paul was a, a literalist. Yes, he believed in a literal creation, a literal fall, a literal Adam. There is Adam. He was the first man created by God. There he is. And there is the last Adam, Christ. And these two men, they are representatives. They are representatives. And what I want you to understand, Paul is saying about that first Adam, is that he is the representative of all his people. All his people. And what I want you to understand about the last Adam, Christ, is that he is the representative of all his people. And what in particular I want you to understand about that first man, Adam, as he stood as the representative of all his people, that God gave him a commandment. And that when Adam sinned, he sinned for his people. That God counted Adam's sin to all his people, all his descendants. And consequently, God counted the guilt, the condemnation arising from that sin, death, to all Adam's people. But here's the good news. Here's the completion of the thought, the comparison. That Christ, that he too performed an act, but it wasn't a sinful act. It was an act of righteousness. And by his one act of righteousness, all his people, as far as God is concerned, they have performed that one act of righteousness. They have performed that one act of obedience. And so we have these two representatives. And again, Paul's point is this. Look, you either are in Adam or you are in Christ. Either Adam is your representative or Christ is your representative. I know this is tricky for us to understand. It's a little difficult, complex for us to grasp. Let me give you some illustration. We just had a, an election recently. And so we elected congressmen and senators. Now I am speaking in theory, not in terms of what actually happens. Congressmen and senators, they are federal representatives. They do not go up there. This is in theory on paper to do whatever they want to do. They go up there as the representative of the people who elected them. And what they say, they are saying on behalf of their people, their constituency. What they do, they are doing on behalf of their constituency. It's the same when you enter into a courtroom with a lawyer. There stands the individual, either the defendant or the, the accused or whatever, and there is a lawyer who represents the individual. And what that lawyer says is on behalf of that person they represent. You think of an ambassador. The United States has ambassadors all over this world, all over, in every country. And that ambassador represents the U.S. government. And when someone in that foreign country actually has an audience with the ambassador, it is as if they have an audience with the president that is with the United States itself, the president himself. Do you get this idea of representation? And so Paul's point is, look, when we look at humanity, you look at history and you look at salvation, and when you interpret scripture, you're up high, you must grasp this. There are two representatives. There are two federal heads. There is Adam and all of his descendants. 
and there is Christ, all of his descendants, that is all those who believe in him. And we develop this and we understand that as we look at Adam, God came to Adam in the garden and God gave Adam a commandment. There's that tree. You shall not eat of that tree. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. We describe that as, you might not like the word, but we'll describe it as a covenant. Some theologians even call it, you don't have to like this, but just by way of being able to describe it, a covenant of works. And when God made that covenant with Adam, he did not make that covenant with him as an individual. He made that covenant with him and you and me. He was the federal head, the representative of all humanity. Therefore, when he sinned, guess what, my friend? Whether you like it or not, I'm really not that interested. It's the text. It's the word of God. When he sinned, guess what, my friend? You sinned. Well, if I'd been there, I wouldn't have done that. You did do that. That's Paul's point as far as God is concerned. He was our federal head acting as our representative. Therefore, when he sinned, we sinned. His sin is our sin. His guilt is our guilt. And his condemnation is our condemnation. Everyone born into this world is born in Adam under the covenant of works and already condemned. Because as far as God is concerned, they already sinned way back there in the garden. You got that. But there is the last Adam, Christ. And there is another covenant. Not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace covenant of grace. And in this covenant of grace, what does the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ pledge to do? What does he promise to do? What does he undertake to do by his one act of righteousness? He pledges, he undertakes to act on behalf of all his people, whereby all those who are one with him through faith, as far as God is concerned. Those people lived the perfect life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived. And those people have died the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. The Lord Jesus Christ in that covenant of grace fulfilled that old covenant of works on behalf of his people. How did he fulfill it? He fulfilled it by obeying the command. He obeyed where Adam disobeyed. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he fulfilled it how? By bearing the penalty for Adam having broken that covenant. The penalty being the curse. The curse being death. And so all who are one with the Lord Jesus are justified by grace through faith in Christ. Because Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works on their behalf. And all that Christ did, he did not do as an individual. He did it as a federal head. He did it as the representative. And as far as God is concerned, in the reckoning of almighty God, that one act of righteousness is yours. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is Paul's message. Now, what I want to do just briefly 
is enter into verses 12 through 14. Just draw out three points handling these verses. What we have here is a chain reaction. And there are three explosions, if you like, in this chain reaction. Here's explosion number one, right at the outset of verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, there is the start of the chain reaction. We're going to state it as follows. Sin invaded. That's what the word literally means. It's kind of tame as we have it there in the verse. It just came. It was more than that. It entered. It's actually more than that. It invaded. It was a hostile takeover that by Adam's one act of disobedience, sin entered, sin invaded. Why is there so much turmoil in this world? Why is there so much bloodshed in this world? Why are people cruel, greedy, violent, selfish, vengeful? Why do so many marriages fall apart? Why is there such an alarming rate of substance abuse? Why is there so much suffering? This is not the way it was supposed to be. It is not the way God created it. Having created the entire universe and having fashioned Adam and Eve, God saw that it was Very good. But through that one trespass, through that one act of unrighteousness, through that one act of disobedience, sin invaded. Second explosion in this chain reaction. Death invaded. Right from the start of verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. The history of humanity is the story of death, isn't it? Young, old, male, female, rich, poor, successful, unsuccessful, healthy, unhealthy, expecting it, not expecting it. Death is the future that each of us anticipates. That's not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way God created things. He created all things, saw that it was very good. Through Adam's one trespass, sin entered into the world. And what followed hot on the heels of that one trespass? Death. Separation of body and soul. Separation from God. But there's a third explosion in this chain reaction. Again from the start of verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, here's the third. And so death spread. I'm going to say death reigned. So sin invaded, death invaded, and now death reigned. Death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. Now here, Paul, he wants to complete the comparison. You know that now, right? He wants to get to verses 18 and 19, but he knows those words because all sinned. Some are going to, the landscape, they're just not looking at it because they're they're just fixated on those words. What what, what does that mean? What do you mean all sinned? Explain that to me. And so he explains it in verses 13 and 14. And his point is this. The chief point Paul is making is as follows. He's saying, look, sin entered, death entered, Death spread to all men. It spread to all men because all sinned. And what what I want you to really understand, what I want you to grasp is this, that death spread to all men, not because all men sin like Adam. Not the point I'm making. It's true, 
but it's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is this. Sin invaded, death invaded, death reigned, spread to all men because all men sinned in Adam. That's his point. Now I'm going to have to prove that. And he proves it by stating three facts. He's already stated the conclusion at the end of verse 12, because all sinned. Now he states three facts which support his contention. Here's fact number one, verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. What's the law? That law which God gave to Moses, the children of Israel. You go back and you read the scriptures. Well, there's a lot going on before that law was given. You go all the way from the fall, Adam's fall, all the way to the giving of the law through Moses at Sinai. Well, you've got a lot of history going on there. And Paul's point is, look, through that entire time period before the law was given, sin was in the world. Cain murdered Abel, right? We know that story. We know the story of the flood. We know the story of the Tower of Babel. We know how the patriarchs sinned, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We were familiar with what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. We know how Jacob's sons sinned. Well, that's a no-brainer. We get that. Yes, before the law was given, sin was in the world. But here's the second fact he introduces in the middle of verse 13. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Sin is not counted where there is no law. You know that to be true from your experience. Police, the, the deputy is not going to walk in here this morning and arrest you and uh, try you and convict you and imprison you for doing something that the law does not forbid. You just can't make something up, but the law doesn't forbid it. Well, then it doesn't actually count against you as a crime and you can't be charged with transgressing the law. That's true, isn't it? Well, the law came in when? Well, it didn't come in until Sinai. There was sin in the world. We just confirmed that with just a few examples. But Paul's second fact is this, but sin is not counted is not reckoned, is not imputed, if you like, where there is no law. But here's his third fact. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, why did all those people still die? If the law was not given until Exodus 15, if the law was not given until Moses at Sinai, then all those people who were indeed sinners, yes, but sin is not counted as transgression apart from law. Why did they all die? Why did death reign? It is because they all sinned. What sin? It is Adam's sin. That by one sin, death entered into the world. That is Paul's point. He confirms it in verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were constituted sinners. And so Paul has described our condition in oh, the darkest way possible. You go back into those earlier chapters and he brings us, he brings us face to face with our own sinfulness, our own wretchedness. I mean, he rhymes off specific sins and we see ourselves there. And he goes into great detail describing our sinful nature, that there's no fear of God before our eyes. But here in these verses, he's taking it to a whole different level. He's saying, look, I'm not talking about your sinful nature. It's true. I'm not talking about it. I'm not talking about that multitude of sins you've committed. 
That's true too, but I'm not talking about it. All those things merit death. That's true, Paul would say. I don't deny any of that, but it's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is simply this. One sin, only one sin. And sin entered the world and death hot on its heels because Adam acted as the representative for all. And his sin is your sin, my friend. His guilt is your guilt. His condemnation is your condemnation. Now that is bad news. It's worse than we thought. That is terrible news. But Paul's point here is what? To give us the good news. And so what does he say right at the end of verse 14? Here we get a little sparkle of hope. Who, he's referring back to Adam. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Oh, if only there were another man. I know I'm not up for it, that's for sure. Nor you. But if only there were another man, a perfect man, walking this earth. And this perfect man triumphed where Adam had failed. And this perfect man was tempted like the devil, just like Adam was tempted by the devil. But this perfect man resisted. Not only resisted, but triumphed. This perfect man could declare that his food and drink was to do the will of his Father in heaven. That this perfect man fulfills all righteousness, fulfilled the law. That this perfect man obeyed, always obeyed. No sin in him. Not one sinful thought. Not one sinful word. Not one sinful deed. And then this perfect man actually climbed a cross. And there upon that cross bore the penalty For me having broken in Adam the covenant of works and that sin which entered the world and that death which entered the world. And he died. And having done that, he was buried. Three days later, he he was risen from the dead, testifying to what? That he was indeed perfect. Was indeed the son of God. That his father indeed accepted his work on behalf of whom? His people. Oh, if there were a man like that. You see, Paul is trying to whet our appetite. Paul, by taking us down and showing us who and what we are in Adam, our representative, he is trying to make this comparison. He is trying to draw this parallel whereby we understand that all that we have is in Christ. That just as sin and death entered in through Adam, So too, justification and life enter in through Christ. That just as through one single solitary trespass, condemnation spread to all those who were in Adam, so too through one act of righteousness, one act of obedience, culminating in Calvary's cross, that justification and life are counted to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his message. Oh, I love federal theology. Praise God for federal theology. Praise God for covenant theology. Praise God for this representative, a perfect man who does everything 
And because I am simply made one with him through faith, God counts his obedience to be mine as if I had lived a perfect life. And God counts, reckons that substitutionary death to be mine as if I had never sinned in the first place. There was a famous preacher on his deathbed some decades ago. And he took pen to paper and he wrote a letter to a dear friend. And in the middle of this letter, he wrote these words. And I echo these words this day. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. I am thankful. I praise God for the active obedience of Christ, for there is no hope without it. I believe. I simply receive this tremendous change in the verdict from guilty to innocent, in the sentence from death to life, I receive. And because now in God's reckoning, I am one with his Son, all that his son did is mine. And I, Stephen Yule, stand righteous in the sight of God. We sing it. I often quote it. One of my favorite lines. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood. Hide all my transgressions from view. How are you righteous before God? That was the question that was up there. All you need to do is accept this gift of Christ with a believing heart. Our God and glory above, we praise you for your word and praise you for the good news and the hope which it contains that there is salvation in the Lord Jesus. As we contemplate your gospel, we stagger before the depth and height of your grace, of your mercy, of your love, and of your faithfulness. And we worship you and praise your great name. And we beg of you this day, our Father, for unbelievers in our midst, that you might show them something of the value of what we have pondered this day that you would show them something of the glory of Christ and that salvation which is found in him alone, that you would bring them to an end of themselves, they might see the darkness of their sin, that there is no hope in themselves, no hope in this world, but there is great hope for all who believe in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, in his name we ask it, amen.